everybody. Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? How can we best embody that aliveness while dealing with the now sometimes violent, strange, and potent forces of the world today? Uh, my name is Brett Kane. I am your host. I am a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor. And today you are going to be joining me for a really wonderful presentation of the book How to Meditate by Pema Chodron. I don't know if we can get that in there. Uh, these are This is one of my book reviews that I do on the off weeks in between proper episodes. And this uh, conversation that I'm starting here is something that's very important to me. I'm an active mindfulness meditator and have been for about two years now. And out of all of the books that I've read on meditation, the one I'm sharing with you today is going to be one of the most crystalline clear in how to really sink into this practice and essentially make it your own and really start to create a solid relationship with not only the technique, but also yourself. So a little bit of a disclaimer, uh, I am a mindfulness meditation instructor as well. I am certified underneath Dharma Moon and Tibet House, Dharma Moon being the Sangha uh, education community created by David Nickturn. If you're familiar with Duncan Trussell Family Hour, or Pete Holmes, or like really good music, he's a Grammy-nominated uh, winner. Um, musician as well, uh, and he's all over the digital sphere, you know, talking about these practices. And Tibet House, if you're unfamiliar, was the um, the statewide created organization um, in tandem with the Dalai Lama. So that's kind of my accreditation, if you will. And I've been working with this practice, like I said, for about two years. I've been certified to teach for a little over a year now, which is insane to me. I've had a few different opportunities here and there with live audiences, and I've had a lot of virtual one-on-one -on -one consultations with people to get folks into this practice in a way that is very sustainable, grounded, and realistic. I'm a really big fan of this brand of meditation and think that it's something that's extremely powerful and very relevant in today's super uncertain times. So it is an honor for me to share Pema's work with this book. Uh, for those of you who do not know who Pema Chodron is, she is an American-born uh, and currently residing Dharma teacher in the same lineage that I am studying under, which is the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Her root teacher is Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who is my teacher's root teacher. And she is an incredible figure in the world of Buddhism and in meditation. She's a very prominent writer with tons of really useful books that are very pertinent to the Western practitioner. She spent most of her life as a householder, you know, trying starting a family and getting married and divorced. And she's very open and gr grounded in that form of life. So that actually allows her to teach the Dharma in a way that is very accessible. Uh, she is not somebody who grew up in Tibet or these other countries. She understands what it means to be an American living in the society. So when she speaks, it is in a way that is very relevant to the way that we perceive uh, what ended up happening with her story. And I don't know the full thing, so I encourage you to check her out. Uh, she essentially went through her, I think, like second divorce. And, you know, as that was a storyline that she had oriented her whole life around is this falling in love, getting married, having a happily ever after. 
she couldn't quite pin down the happily ever after part because as Buddhism teaches us is that everything changes. You know, there's no static, fixed, permanent thing. And it was that misunderstanding that caused her a lot of suffering. So she ended up getting into meditation and Buddhism as a whole and ended up joining the nunnery. I think that's the correct term for that role and became, like I said, one of the most prominent meditation instructors in the West. Um, and this book is really a brilliant culmination and introduction to the exact practice that the Buddha did to attain enlightenment. And it's what Buddhists do all around the world. So when we say mindfulness, oftentimes what comes up is the front of yoga magazine or these kind of like pop pieces on how mindfulness can change your life and increase your productivity. And, you know, it's being taught in schools and in prisons and Fortune 500 companies. And it really is something that's very in vogue right now. But if we say it's a fad, then what we're saying is that it's really, it's a 2,500-year-old fad because this practice is that old. It is from the time of the Buddha and has been passed down traditionally in an oral fashion between um, the teacher to student in direct transmission. So for thousands of years, this has been a very carefully and meticulously transmitted practice that has really only recently been put down into words and shared in a mass scale where people can sign up for an app and get plugged in. But traditionally, that's not how it's done. And I'm just going to preface by saying, uh, you know, as a teacher who has been studying this for a while, I really do want to advocate working with a teacher when you get into this practice, because there's so much nuance. And the more you can expand your view of what you're doing with mindfulness, then I think the the more clear the practice will be and the more support you're going to feel when you get into this. It can be kind of easy to think that we're doing it and really there's maybe something that's just kind of keeping us a little out of it. So there's a little bit of fine tuning when you get started to really get a strong foundation in this practice. And I think books like this um, and also The Myth of Freedom by Chogyam Trumpa is another really great one to kind of do some myth busting and really establish the terrain that we're going to be walking through as we do this practice together. So that's my preliminary um, word of the wise, I guess, is that if you're interested in this, and we are going to have a practice session in this video, so you're going to have an opportunity to experience it for a very brief time. But if you are interested, please feel free to reach out to me and we can start working together. I, I mean, you can always read, you can always watch videos, and that can be very helpful. But in my experience, it has been so needed to have a teacher to be able to bounce off my unique experience and to have somebody look at me and what I'm doing and hear me receive that and then to guide me specifically as I am rather than trying to adhere to a blanket generalization that might not really answer the questions that I have. So again, I just really encourage you. Um, we could do some really great work. I can get you really established in the thing and I can do it virtually too. So you can head on over to 21stCenturyVitalism.com and hit the contact form and just shoot me an email and then we can organize something. And if you want to work uh, in a teacher-student relationship, I am very willing to do that. Again, I've been practicing and studying extensively for about two years now. I have two days of um, schooling, essentially, where I'm learning about all of this and I can really create a map with you that is very unique and specific to your current 
karmic predicament. So that's something I really love doing, and I just wanted to open that up. So now that we kind of know a little bit about where mindfulness came from, how old it is, how do you best navigate it by essentially getting a teacher, I want to get into a little bit about just what what is it, you know, like what is it that we're talking about? And I think a good way to really get a foothold into this is to talk about two key aspects for the sake of this video and the length. And I think the very first aspect that really colors the tone and the texture of it is familiarization. So mindfulness practice is a way to become familiar with the workings of your mind and the way that reality kind of unfolds around you. So we're really training in clarity and the ability to discriminate the different aspects of our being and to see what is actually there, not what we think is there, but what is actually there. So you start to get to really know yourself, both in your wisdom and in your neuroses, which is something I'm going to read from this book. And a lot of people think immediately when they think of meditation as you sit here and just complete absorption in peace and bliss. Some techniques do that, um, specifically in like the yogic tradition and some of the tantric Buddhist traditions, but this is the foundational awareness building mechanism where we really strengthen our ability to see clearly. So that is... Um, kind of the foundation of what we are going to be doing. In order to work with the mind, first you have to see what it's actually doing. So this practice allows us to feel much more deeply into the things that we're moving through, which is a beautiful thing, but it can also be a little painful at times. So there is this element of courageousness that comes through. You're really cultivating bravery by getting to know yourself because not everything you find you're going to like. But also at the same time, Underneath that, through the unfolding of this practice, you will see the basic goodness that it is to just be a human being. So it is the entire human experience wrapped up into a container that, you know, 20, 40 minutes. And you're really cultivating something that carries with you into all of life. So something that we talk about with the level of familiarization is we have this con container of experience where we're doing the proper sitting practice and we're really being with our mind in a very raw and intimate way. But when you get off of the cushion, the more you do this, the more you're yoking that awareness capacity into your everyday lived experience. So really the meditation, you start to recognize very subtly when you're interacting with people, things that may have in the past really upset you or kind of triggered you, so to speak you'll start to have more space around each of that and you find that your habitual responses are just that they're habitual but you don't have to choose them because you know yourself so well and you're used to seeing the way that your mind works, it gives you a lot of creativity and freedom to start creating new patterns for yourself. So that's one of the really big things about mindfulness is that we are learning what our habitual energy patterns are, and we're learning how to choose different ones. But first, you have to really see them, and a lot of our life is dedicated towards not seeing them. We often respond to the unsatisfactory nature of life by trying to reach out for things or push things away or ignore things. And these are called the three root po poisons, and they are what drives 99.9% .9 of all human activity. 
And these really keep us ignorant of our true nature, of what is possible in this human incarnation. So by becoming familiar with the habitual ways that we respond to the world, we are able to become friends with it. So that's the second principle that I wanted to bring up right now. So you have familiarization, learning to see yourself in a very complete and raw way. And then there's creating an unconditional friendliness with everything that comes up in your experience. So this is where equanimity comes from, by cultivating the muscle of loving kindness in response to seeing the things that come up. If, say, you're sitting on the cushion and a really unsavory thought comes up, a lot of the times we'll push it away, we'll lambast ourselves, with, how could you possibly think that? How could you possibly do that? Oh, you're jealous? Stop that. What we're also training beyond the familiarization is the ability to say, I see you. I see this anger. I'm holding this anger in awareness. I'm not pushing it away. I'm not suppressing it. Because the moment you suppress it, the more you've created this hostility between you and your experience. You're removing yourself from the experience. So by creating an unconditional friendliness, you're really allowing yourself to feel what you feel and allowing yourself to be present with yourself. You're not turning your back towards any aspect of your reality. And that's equanimity. That is where the peace of the Buddhists come from. It's not from eliminating all of the things that bother you. It's about using the action of awareness and loving kindness in response to the things that hurt you. So it takes seeing it, but then it takes employing this uh, ability of loving kindness, which is called Maitri. So the two sections I'm going to read from this book elaborate those two aspects a little bit more and why that they're important and why it is the fundamental thing that we could be doing that can alleviate our suffering and the suffering of those around us as well. So that's mindfulness in the briefest nutshell. We are getting to see ourselves more clearly. We are creating a sense of loyalty and steadfastness, never turning our back against ourselves. And we're learning how to bring that into our life beyond the cushion. Um, so this book touches up on a lot of that, and um, it's a, you know, a decent-sized book, but it's very digestible and accessible. And the full title is How to Meditate, A Practical Guide to Making Friends with Your Mind. So this really is exemplifying the loving-kindness element that I'm talking about here, which really is hard to separate from any other part of the practice. So just a, a quick primer on what you're going to be getting when you, when you buy this book. Um, the part one is the, all about the techniques. So you're looking at how to make the commitment, how to prepare for your practice, what stabilizing the mind is, the six points of posture, your breath, your attitude, unconditional friendliness, and really trusting your own intuition and wisdom, which is a big part of the Buddhist path as well. Uh, part two is working with your thoughts. It talks about the discursive nature, the constant thinking of our mind and what that really is about and how do we like navigate it. And um, the part three is about working with emotions, which is something that is super pertinent as we're in this very interesting uh, geopolitical situation. A lot of emotions are going to be coming up in your life and having a proper relationship with them and how to understand, how to turn that into the practice as well, that there's nothing that gets left off the table of what happens. 
the fourth part is working with your sense perceptions. So that's your visual, your audio, auditory, your um, nasal perceptions, your taste, your body, your mind. Um, and then part five is opening your heart to include everything. So this is, again, kind of the introduction into the rest of the Buddhist path. So I want to read just a little bit about um, what she has to say in the introduction. And this is really kind of talking about the awareness of things. And it really does share a little bit of the texture of the path. And you can figure out if this is something that you want to do. There's a lot of different meditation techniques out there. So if you currently need something different, that is totally okay. There's no one right way. But I have found as someone who's been on the spiritual marketplace for a long time, this is maybe one of the most radical things I've ever done because it is just such a hands-off. We're not trying to manipulate our experience. We're just really there in a raw place. And it uh, is profound. And you'll immediately resonate or you won't resonate. And that's okay too. So this section is called Why Meditate? We do not meditate in order to be comfortable. In other words, we don't meditate in order to always, all the time, feel good. I imagine shockwaves are passing through you as you read this because so many people come to meditation to simply feel better. However, the purpose of meditation is not to feel bad, you'll be glad to know. Rather, meditation gives us the opportunity to have an open, compassionate attentiveness to whatever is going on. The meditative space is like the big sky, spacious, vast enough to accommodate anything that arises. In meditation, our thoughts and emotions can become like clouds that dwell and pass away, good and comfortable, pleasing and difficult and painful. All of this comes and goes. So the essence of meditation is training in something that is quite radical and definitely not the habitual pattern of the species and that is to stay with ourselves no matter what is happening, without putting labels of good and bad, right and wrong, pure and impure on top of our experience. If meditation was just about feeling good, and I think all of us secretly hope that's what it's about, we would often feel like we must be doing it wrong. Because at times, meditation can be a, such a difficult experience. A very common experience of the meditator in a typical day or at a typical re retreat is the experience of boredom, restlessness, a hurting back, pain in the knees, even the mind might be hurting, so many not feeling good experiences. Instead, meditation is but a compassionate openness and the ability to be with oneself and one situation through all kinds of experiences. And meditation, okay, in meditation, you're open to whatever life presents you with. It's about touching the earth and coming back to being right here. While some kinds of meditation are more about achieving special states and somehow transcending or rising above the difficulties of life, the kind of meditation that I've trained in and that I'm teaching here is about awakening fully to our life. It's about opening the heart and mind to the difficulties and joys of life, just as it is. And the fruits of this kind of meditation are boundless. So that really I found to be an important uh, primer in that we shouldn't have expectations when we come to this practice. Oftentimes we spend a lot of our life caught in autopilot or a daydream state where we are doing a lot of things that do not promote wakefulness. 
we are trying to create pleasant situations for ourselves to kind of avoid the unsatisfactory nature that sometimes happens most of the time, all of the time, of being a human. It, it can be a difficult experience. And the more that we try and manipulate our external experience to alleviate that, the more we kind of delude ourselves from connecting to the raw nowness of being here. We're never allowing ourselves to just be here, to just take our place on the earth as we are in all the messiness. And this practice is really about cultivating that ability to stay with yourself. Which, again, she says, the fruits of that are boundless. The second part that I want to read is on the unconditional friendliness aspect. So as we talk about the rawness of feeling the full breadth of what it is to be a human, this is an important part. It is as crucial as that. Whenever we practice meditation, it is important to try and refrain from criticizing ourselves about how we practice and what comes up in our practice. This would only be training in being hard on ourselves. I want to emphasize the importance of maintaining an atmosphere of unconditional friendliness when you practice and as you take your practice out into the world. We can practice for a lot of years. I know many people who have practiced for countless years, decades even, and somewhere along their umpteenth year, it dawns on them that they haven't been using the practice to develop loving kindness for themselves. Rather, it's been somewhat aggressive meditation towards themselves, perhaps very goal-oriented. As someone said, I meditated all those years because I wanted people to think I was a good Buddhist, or I meditated all those years out of a feeling of, I should do this. It would be good for me. And so naturally, we come to meditation with the same attitudes with which we come to everything. I've seen this with students time and time again, and it's very human. Rather than letting this be something to feel bad about, you can discover who you are at your wisest and who you are at your most confused. You get to know yourself in all your aspects, at times completely sane and open-hearted, and at other times completely messed up and bewildered. We were all at times a basket case. Whew, that's relief. Meditation gives you the opportunity to get to know yourself in all those aspects. Judging ourselves for how our practice is going or what might be coming up for us during meditation is a kind of subtle aggression toward ourselves. The steadfastness we develop in meditation is a willingness to stay. It may seem silly, but meditation actually isn't too unlike training a dog. We learn to stay. When you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, you stay. When you're worried about what's going to happen on Monday, you stay. It's very lighthearted, compassionate instruction. It is like training a dog in the sense that you can train the dog with harshness, and the dog will learn to stay. But if you train it by beating it and yelling at it, it will stay and it will be able to follow that command, but it'll be very neurotic and scared. As long as you give a very clear command in the way that the dog is trained, you'll be able to follow it. But add in any kind of unpredictably, unpredictability or uncertainty, and the poor animal just becomes confused and neurotic. Or you can train the dog with gentleness. You can train the dog with gentleness and kindness, and it produces a dog that can also stay and heal and roll over and sit up and all of these things. But the dog is flexible and playful, and it can roll with the punches, so to speak. Personally, I prefer to be the second kind of dog. This staying, this perseverance, this loyalty that comes with meditation, it's all very gentle or compassionate in its motivation. This gentle approach to yourself in meditation is called Maitri. 
This is translated as loving kindness or just love. In terms of meditation, we learn to be kind, loving, and compassionate toward ourselves. I teach about Maitri a lot, and it is often misunderstood as some kind of self-indulgence, as if it is just about feeling good and being self-concerned. People will often think that's what I mean by Maitri, but it's somewhat subtle what Maitri is and what it isn't. For example, you might say that taking a bubble bath or getting a workout at the gym is Maitri, but on the other hand, maybe it isn't, because maybe it's some kind of avoidance. Maybe you are working out to punish yourself. On the other hand, maybe going to the gym is just what you need to relax enough to go on with your life with some kind of lightheartedness. Or it might be one of your 65 daily tactics to avoid reality. You're really the only one that knows. So, for the sake of the duration of this video, I think those are the two passages I think are most important for us to begin. And we will, uh, from this point onward, actually go into a little 10-minute practice. So if you are out and about, if you're at the gym or something like that, maybe pause this episode and then wait until you have a little bit of time. You know, the instruction will take a little bit, 5-10 minutes. And then, so we're looking at about 20 minutes of time. I really encourage you to give this a go. I mean, you have an opportunity for a free instruction and, you know, we're just coming into the present moment together. We're really seeing what's here and opening to that with a little bit of gentleness, which is something that we may not really know how to do at first. And we can be gentle about that fact, the fact that it's kind of hard to be nice to ourselves. But it is a practice and it's something that is possible. And it's something that can really affect the way you relate to all of life, other people, um, situations in the world. So let's transition into practice. In order to really get into this technique of mindfulness, we really just need to remember three simple steps. They are simple and we often want to complicate things. We want to add all this and what about this and fine tune into oblivion. But if you can just remember these three simple steps, then you can practice anywhere. And that's what's really great about this is you don't need a whole lot. So the very first step is to take your seat. So this refers to what we do with our body during meditation in which there are a few different postures that we can take. And the theme of these postures is that we are upright but not uptight. So we end up cultivating a sense of upliftedness, wakefulness, but also relaxation and ease in the body. So this is why I'm kind of in this setting and not in the typical podcast spot, which you've all seen me in, so that I can uh, provide an example as we do this. Um, if you're doing the practice right now with us, you can either sit on the ground cross-legged, which I am doing like so. I'm just going to slide this camera back. Wow, that is perfect. Great. So you can sit on the ground cross-legged. This is the typical uh, cross-legged here. I was doing half lotus. Uh, I understand that this could be uncomfortable for certain people. If you have back pain, if your knees get achy, you can also sit on the edge of a chair. Uh, the key to sitting on a chair is making sure that your back isn't leaning back, 
but yet you were on the edge with very firm footing. You really want to emphasize the connection to the earth. And that is something that we also do while I'm sitting on a Zaifu, which is what this is here. It doesn't matter if you have one of those, you can just have a cushion. So sitting cross-legged or on the edge of a chair, you can start by just rocking the sit bones back and forth, really feeling the full-bodied contact and the weightiness of being here and now. After rolling the sit bones, find a spot that is evenly balanced between the two. This will provide the most stability and the most firm connection. We really want to, in a dignified way, take our seat. We are practicing something that has traveled for 2,600 years. And it's an amazing thing that this lifetime we're able to even experience this once. So there's a little bit of honor in that. And you can feel free to experience that. This is the practice of warriorship. So if you can remember that as we take our seat, that really does paint a lot of the, the color of how this is. We have a firm seat upon the earth. You can kind of tilt your hips a little forward and roll on the front of your sit bones. You can feel the curve in your lower back. This is going to alleviate a lot of lower back tension for longer sits. And it's also a great thing to do if you're an office worker. By sitting on the perineum, you actually you restore your lumbar curve and it adds a nice buoyancy to your posture. Taking a deep breath into this grounded position. The next thing we want to do is to stack our spine. Allow yourself to rise up as if a string is pulling on the crown of your head. We don't want to be slouching. We don't want our shoulders to exaggeratedly move forward. You can even lift your shoulders up and drop them back. You really feel the uplifted sensation. This really promotes a sense of wakefulness and sensation of being on the spot. We can really respect the fact that we are who we are in this moment, whether or not it's sloppy or if we're feeling wise. Just by being here, by taking this time for yourself, is a really wonderful, clarifying experience. Next, regards our hands which are going to be on our knees or on our thighs, depending on how long your arms are. This isn't a superfluous addition. Our hands are palm side down. Nice firm contact. This is called the resting mind mudra. A mudra is a seal of intention. And in this case, we are really securing that grounding energy. Again, this practice is about being here in your room, in the space that you find yourself in. The uplifted spine, you can kind of tilt the chin to be parallel to the floor. Feel if there's any tension in your face. My jaw tends to have a lot. 
and just let it go. You can either let it hang open a little bit or just keep it lightly closed. Moving up, you can feel whether or not you have tension in your eyebrows. I sometimes perpetually scold. An important point of posture for this specific seat is that we keep our eyes open for this technique. We keep them downward at a soft open gaze about six feet in front of us. I know this might be weird for some people who have another meditative technique that they employ, but this practice is about cultivating wakefulness, and it really is bringing space to the mind so that when we get off of the cushion, we are imbuing our awareness with this clarity. So it might be a little weird at first, but for the sake of this video and working with this technique, let's keep our eyes open and allow that bridge to unite our sitting practice and our post-meditation. And this is the the posture. You have a strong back, a soft front, open heart towards yourself and the world. And just find ourselves here. The second step is to place your attention on the breath. This is a gentle placement, and it could be sensation of air entering and leaving your nose, whether it feels cold or warm. It could be your chest rising and falling, your stomach expanding and contracting. Whatever is most accessible for your attention to rest on, that's the point. Now, we're not slowing the breath. We're not deepening the breath. We're not changing it. So if you're breathing really shallowly, just allow your body to be as it is. Rather than thinking about the breath, try and become the breath. Feeling your body on the inhale and dissolving on the exhale. Really feeling that gap in between both actions. It's a very rich and immediate experience. Now, you might have already come to find that the mind does not like to stay. So the third instruction is when you recognize that the mind has started to think, you simply label it thinking and gently bring your attention back to the breath. And with this instruction, it's important to keep in mind that the nature of the mind is to think. You're not going to stop it. This practice is not about silencing the mind, and it's not a failure if you spend the entire practice in thought. We're simply recognizing as thoughts come and go, and gently bringing it back to the breath time and time again.
as the teacher Sharon Salzberg said, the healing comes from coming back. It's not that the mind doesn't drift off, but it's in the coming back that we really tap into the energy of what mindfulness is. So don't try and assassinate your thoughts. Don't wait in ambush in the moment it comes up you aggressively. Try and throw it away. Simply label it, recognize it, and just let it go. Just continually letting go, coming back. Letting go, coming back. So that's the practice. We're taking our seat on the earth in this present moment. We're becoming our breath bringing our attention to it, and it's the natural breath. We're recognizing when we start to drift into thought, and we simply label it, and then gently bring it back to the breath. So we're going to sit like this for 10 minutes. I'm going to set a timer, you know, ring a bell on the in and the out, so you don't have to worry about that. Once I find my time here. Okay. Let's begin.
If you feel uncomfortable at all, please feel free to readjust. I'm going to shake it out. You just begin again. It's not a big deal.
Alright, you can let go of the technique, bring your attention back to the video or the audio. At this point I would usually have a dialogue with you and see what came up and how that worked. If you want to post on the video comments, please let me know what you thought, what your experience was, or if you want to reach out via email, again, 21stCenturyVitalism at gmail.com. As I said before, this is a very powerful practice, and it's one that can maybe take a little bit of finagling to get into. So I really encourage you to reach out if you want to learn a little bit more. It can be a lot more specific. I have lesson plans already rolled out, ready to go, that can really create a solid foundation for your practice that you can then take with you for the rest of your life. My goal is to essentially turn you into your own meditation teacher, to really equip you with the tools so you don't have any confusion with the nature of the practice and you can let your natural intuition guide you into the deeper and deeper levels. I do want to read a quote from Trumpa Rinpoche, which is at the start of this book. The principle of nowness is very important to any effort to establish an enlightened society. You may wonder what the best approach is to helping society and how you can know that what you are doing is authentic and good. The only answer is nowness. The way to relax or rest the mind in nowness is through the practice of meditation. In meditation, you take an unbiased approach. You let things be as they are, without judgment. And in that way, you yourself learn to be. This is all How to Meditate by Pema Chodron. Um, I think that's going to be it for today's video. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope that this was uh, educational. I hope that you had a good experience, potentially with your first sit in this style. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I love talking about this. I love sharing this practice. It is a part of my practice to get you to practice. So without anything else to say, thank you so much for joining me. I hope that you have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves because this time is it's difficult. So all right, be well, my friends.